morning. It is Monday, April 27th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus outbreak in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse every weekday morning at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, as yet another week of life on lockdown begins, we want to continue the conversation of what opening up our community might look like and what conditions we'll need to do this safely. Joining me by phone, as always, is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Tim. Yeah. Um, boy, I don't know if anybody else is feeling what I'm feeling, but I'm feeling sort of fatigued with all of this. I know other people, we've all been feeling me fatigued. Me too, me too. Um, and a lot of wonder, like, okay, so we've done all these things. Was it enough? How long do we have to do it? When will it be time to return to normal? What will normal look like? Um, and actually, many of us are starting, you know, many places are starting to lift uh, or modify the stay-at-home order. So I think we're about to learn more about what that's going to look like in the future. But I have to keep reminding myself that I can only do what I can do and that um, there's a reason I don't know what's going to happen next because we haven't ever done this before. So. And, you know, we we have had global pandemics of uh, respiratory illnesses before, but nobody who experienced the one in 1919 is still alive or in any, I'm sure there are some people who were infants at the time, and they're not going to be all that helpful. Um, so just to go over the numbers, we've reached the 3 million mark worldwide, and these are um, uh, documented cases that either they've tested positive or they've been uh, had uh, obvious uh, clinical symptoms and an exposure to a case. 208,000 deaths worldwide with 888,000 recovered. In the United States, we're rapidly approaching um, a million cases, 987,000 cases as of this morning, with 55,000 deaths and 119,000 recovered. Um, In Missouri, we've uh, jumped up a little bit over the uh, over the weekend. We're now at 7,133 cases, and when we talked on Friday, uh, we were. 6,532, so um, almost 600 new cases, Um, and we think that that had to do with a backlog of some reporting, and I'm not sure I understand that. So it's not necessarily that we had 600 new cases um, of people who actually got infected over the weekend, Um, but it still is a concerning um, increase in the numbers. Uh, Boone County has 98 cases and one death, and Saline County is up to 167 cases. Cole County has slightly increased to 50 cases, and Monotow County, uh, just to our southwest, is um, up to 39 cases. And um, we think the the Saline County cases are related to a meat processing um, plant. So, you know, we're there seem to be two uh, kinds of facilities that seem to rapidly increase the spread of the disease. I think that's I, I make made a. Uh, an assumption and a leap there. I'm just going to say differently. We seem to have noticed a significant number, an unusual number of uh, positive tests in the in meat processing facilities and in nursing homes. And uh, we're starting to see some spread also in prisons. All of those are concerning because people are in close proximity to each other um, and they're often not, um, they're, they're vulnerable in some way, either 
They are recent uh, arrivals to the United States. They maybe aren't eating a beautiful diet. They may be stressed in many ways or are elders. So these are places that I'm looking at. Um, and I'm wondering what you're thinking this morning, Tim. Do you have some wisdom to share? Well, I'm mainly here as our, our engineer in chief. I know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I do have some resources that I'd like to share later on towards the yeah. end of our, our conversation. Okay. All right. So then I want to just like six weeks ago, we were all very aware of the shortage of ventilators. We all learned what a ventilator was and uh, people around the country and all around the world began to sort of take some creative approaches to it. Like, can we use uh, one ventilator for more than one person? Uh, Can we use ventilators that were designed for animals uh, and are being used in veterinary offices? Um, can we use ventilators that are sized for children, for adults? Can we modify the way we use ventilators? Can we use fewer of them? Can we, can people um, 3D print uh, some of the parts that need to be replaced um, between patients? And we came up with some really creative solutions. Um, and uh, industry and supply chain people really went to work, and we got a lot more ventilators. Um, and so we have not, I have not heard stories in the United States of people being denied ventilators because of a shortage. I'm sure it's happened, it may very well have happened, but this is not the prominent story that it was in Italy. Right. And we heard and all that, like, that news up front about, you know, Cuomo needing thousands and thousands of ventilators, but fortunately that never came to pass. Yeah. And some are changing in the way we're using ventilators. Uh, we're realizing that uh, for people over the age of 65 with COVID disease, um, if you are on a ventilator, your chance of dying is about 97%. Wow. So increasingly, people are uh, declining uh, ventilator uh, use um, uh, because they would rather not. Um, and it, I'm not aware of any place where people are being denied a ventilator because of their age, but I think there are honest conversations being had. We're also realizing that this disease is different than many other respiratory illnesses and that the ventilation may not, may, may be um, undermining of the, of the, what the lungs were trying to do in a way that it doesn't seem to be with influenza. So we're learning that we could maybe use ventilators differently. They're modifying pressures in, in ways that it's I've read about them, and it seems to go over my head because it's not work that I do on the regular. But I would like for us to all get a similar focus about nasal swabs. That is the thing that's limiting us right now. We can't do testing because we can't get the samples out of people's bodies. So we have labs that tell us that they've got plenty of capacity to actually process the specimen. But we, it's the swab we want to stick up your nose that's in short supply. And it is a, it's got a plastic handle and a fancy flocked Dacron head. So we can't just use a regular cotton swab that you could buy at the grocery store. And I don't know why they're in short supply, but they're in short supply in the United States. And I would love for us to get the same enthusiasm for finding uh, Dacron swabs. There are actually people who have um, published open source uh, 3D printing uh, code for 3D printing Dacron swabs. I don't think it's a thing that most do-it-yourselfers would be able to do. It requires a complexity of a 3D printer and materials, but that's giving me some promise. 
But I think that, um, you know, I heard a, a Planet Money episode about um, a, a car manufacturing plant that retooled themselves to make ventilators and did that very quickly. And I am just hoping that there's a similar intensive uh, creativity to try to get us more swabs. So if everybody would start to talk about swabs in the way we talked about ventilators, so if you're listening and you're wondering what you can do, um, do a little bit of reading, see if you can find some articles about nasal swabs and why we're short, and talk about that with your friends, post it on social media, bring it up at your next Zoom conversation. Um, I think I, we are so limited by not being able to test people. So in the United States, we are still not testing any asymptomatic people to speak of. Hmm. So we know that significant people who are not sick yet or who never really get sick can spread this illness. And we don't know who those people are. So we are not even testing asymptomatic contacts of a known case. So if you come across a person and you know you've contacted somebody who is, has, a, has tested positive and has a known infection, you can't get tested until you develop symptoms. And we're saying, well, we're not going to treat that any differently because we're just going to ask you to um, isolate or quarantine for two weeks. The problem is that sometimes these are ongoing contacts. Um, somebody's got to go to the grocery store, so you've got a house or someplace. I, I think we're going way more places than we than we need to be. But you've got a household; they've all been um, they've all been had been a contact. We don't know who's infectious. The test isn't perfect in telling us who's infectious, but it helps. And then we don't know what do we do about the contacts of the contacts of an asymptomatic person. So. You know, if if I had to, you know, did a home visit on somebody that later turned positive and I don't have symptoms, what should my family members do? And what about their contacts? And, and it just gets very complicated when we can't know where it is. And what about people like prison workers, meatpacking plant workers, nursing home workers, nursing home resident, residents? These are all we know to be fairly high-risk populations. And if you have a somebody who is spreading it asymptomatically, we just don't even know how to do that. We don't know how to deal with that. So more testing, it's, I think everybody agrees that more testing would be a great idea. And we're now limited not by money necessarily or by enthusiastic people ready to order the tests and gather the tests or even the lab's ability to process them. We need the swabs. And I'm going to bet that once we get enough swabs, we will then need an equivalent amount of what's called viral transport medium. It's about, oh, three to four milliliters, uh, you know, a tablespoon or so of fluid in the bottom of a tube that the Dacron swab goes into. And, you know, ideally, nobody would know about these things except the people who need to process them. But I think we need to all know about it because that's the thing when we start to talk about it, then maybe creative people will come to the fore and fix this shortage problem. For so, so, so is part of the problem that uh, the production for, say, the swabs or the viral media, is that are the supply chains so disrupted that we aren't able to do it? Or are they located outside of the country? Do you have any idea about that? This is a thing I don't know. So I heard a news report this weekend that there was and I didn't pay attention to the locality, but there was some city that was going to be able to be offering um, expanded testing. And it was because the mayor's wife is Korean and speaks Korean and was able to find suppliers in South Korea who 
were able to supply them some. So I don't know whether they exist somewhere and we just don't have them distributed well, or are they like many of the other things where there's a very short supply everywhere and you just have to, you know, get yourself to the front of the line somehow to get them? Um, are we not making them in the United States and other countries that have plenty of them are keeping them for themselves, which I wouldn't disagree with them about. I don't know what the reason why is. You know, one of the things is that this is the same swab we use to gather the flu sample for the influenza test. And this COVID infection came on the the end of the tail end of our flu season. So I'm going to guess that a lot of suppliers were um, and people who were trying to do supply chain stuff were thinking, well, we shouldn't need a whole lot of that, you know, until the fall. And so we probably have adequate supply. So I imagine that we purchased fewer and, uh, you know, that up the supply chain people were making fewer. And I am certain that there are plenty of people who are working really hard to turn this crank. And I'm not trying to, you know, dis- disrespect them at all. It's just that we need we need more. And it is frustrating that um, we're, you know, that this is what's limiting us. Right. It's very so. frustrating. Also interesting that, as you say, this is the bottleneck and not um, some other piece of the puzzle that may seem more complicated. This is a swab. It's a swab. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a complex swab. I mean, it's a, it, the, the whole, it's a fairly... They're, the swabs are sort of different every couple of years. And then, you know, if you have collection kits in your office, you have to turn them back in because now we have nicer swabs and we collect the sample a little different. So it is a technology that okay. is um, a little complex, but it is so simple compared to a ventilator. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I know that people – so, you know, I've been thinking, like, what should we do in Boone County? We have, you know, the last I looked, we, when I looked at active cases, we have five active cases of residents of Boone County, which is not a lot. And I think it is making a lot of people think like, well, why shouldn't I visit my grandma and why can't I have my friends over for a, a bonfire? And, and I, I don't know what's the right thing to do. I know that we have been spared what happened in New York City so far. And I think because we just, we just got really lucky that um, the many things that bring people in and out of Columbia, including True False Film Festival and various athletic events, were not super spreader events because we could have ended up with something very different. And that was before we really knew whether it was spreading in the United States. And with what's going on in our surrounding counties with uh, meatpacking plants and uh, jails and prisons, I think that we, all I can think of is, okay, so what happened in New York City, what happened in Italy, what happened in California is still ahead of us. Like we, it's not, well, we got spared and we're not going to have to do that. I think we're still going to have to walk through a lot of people getting infected. Um, And I think we all get to decide what we want that to look like, um, whether we want to continue to stay home and order our groceries online and have things delivered in curbside pickup and, um, you know, order all of our other um, consumer goods that we're going to eventually need, you know. Mm-hmm. People run, you know, they wear out their shoes and they need additional clothing and, you know, 
all of those things need to be done. And yet, uh, but we're talking about opening up our hot yoga studios and our massage therapists and our hairdressers and our nail salons and tattoo parlors. Um, although I think I heard that the Missouri Tattoo Artists Association is recommending we not, that their uh, members not participate in the reopening right away. But um, it just seems to me that if we were going to start to do something that I would rather us be doing some uh, working at maybe doing some sort of in-person something that would educate our children, that would allow people to get their non-urgent um, uh, health care uh, needs done. I mean, when, we've, when we stopped doing um, anything that wasn't an emergency in medicine, that was things like people not getting their cancer surgeries and delaying chemotherapy um, and not getting hip replacements or knee replacements. And so people were continuing to live in pain and, you know, are not getting their cataracts taken out. I think that these are things that we all agree can be put off, but perhaps not indefinitely. Right. For how long is the question? We're all asking, right. how long are we going to be doing this? And, you know, how everyone's dealing with this? the stress and the anxiety and maybe the, the economic factors if they've lost their job and are unemployed. You know, I can't blame people for wanting to reopen and to get back out there. The, the, the cost of continuing to do this physical distancing and, and doing everything differently is huge. And I... You know, I feel a little bit, I often, I've attended so many births over the years that almost everything comes back to a birth analogy with me. But, you know, there's, there you are, you've got a baby inside and the baby's going to come and be on the outside. And there's not an easy way to, to get that accomplished. And I feel the same way about this COVID thing. There's not an easy way for us to get through this. We, we just have to decide between the various really hard, painful ways. Um, and uh, I think the responsible thing I can do is continue to really limit the amount of exposure I have to other people. So I am still not going into uh, buildings I don't live in except for my own office. I am not inviting patients who I can see in other ways or take care of over the phone or video. I am not inviting them into my office if I can possibly avoid it. Um, when I do need to see somebody, I'm preferring home visits because it uh, prevents things from coming into my office so much. Um, and I am asking everybody um, to continue to uh, do that if they possibly can. And I know that one of the things when we stop, when we lift these stay-at-home orders, is that businesses will be allowed to be open. And so the kind of support like unemployment insurance and, uh, you know, protection from needing to give people refunds for canceled events will disappear. And so the economic cost will land more on individuals and individual businesses. Um, so, you know, I, these are difficult decisions and, and we're all going to have to do difficult things one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have so, a, a local resource I wanted to share about before yeah, we wrap up this morning. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, mm -hmm. there are free mental health services um, available for Boone County residents dealing with stress and anxiety due to Great. the pandemic. And so as of last Thursday, the Family Access Center of Excellence of Boone County is guiding families to local therapists who can provide up to six hours of free counseling through technology. So 
uh, telehealth visits, essentially. So all Boone County residents with a child 19 or under are eligible. And the sessions last usually about an hour, so you can get about six sessions. And um, this was, of course, established in response to the pandemic and hopes to address a lot of these stressors that families are dealing with at this time, you know, regarding continuing education for their child, social distancing, and just the general stress of having this virus. And all of this is funded by the Boone County Children's Services Board, which is funded through a children's services uh, fund sales tax. So this is a, a great civic resource that everyone can tap into, and it's available through the Family Access Center of Excellence of Boone County. Yeah. And I want to just say very quickly that people with symptoms of COVID disease, cough, uh, shortness of breath, fever, GI symptoms, um, loss of smell or taste um, uh, are welcome to get tested. And they can either call my office, 443-7070, area code 573, or log on to org and go through their telehealth free um, uh, process. Great. Well, thank you so much once again for joining us this morning, Dr. Elliman. Thank you. Bye. And that's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. You can catch our coronavirus update and report live every weekday morning at 9 a.m. here on KOPN. And if you miss it, you can find it later on at our website, kopn.org, and on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Coming up next is an abridged version of Background Briefing followed by Economic Update and The Laura Flanders Show. So please stay tuned, and thank you for supporting your community radio station, KOPN Columbia.